1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Samuel.
0: Real love is
2: calling, listen, up your eyes. Mercy is waiting with every sunrise. Here his daughter-in-law is. She just lost her father-in-law. She's lost her husband. She gives premature birth. And she names her child Ichabod, which means no glory, because the glory of God has departed from Israel. Now, God has never abandoned his people. But when his people try to, and this includes us, okay, like apply this, not just to something of ancient Israel. Whenever we try to use God or manipulate God for our selfish and sinful purposes, there's something to pay.
1: If you've received salvation, you could spend the rest of your life in constant praise to God for it, and it still wouldn't be enough. He's given you the greatest gift you could receive. That's why Pastor Gary is going to show you today how important it is to make sure that God gets the glory for everything in life that you have and through everything you do. God asks it of you and takes it seriously when you don't. His glory needs to be spread everywhere so others can come to know His salvation too. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 5 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: It's at this point in Israel's history that they are still under a form of government that is led by judges. Not judges like we think of judges in black robes with gavels, but these are military leaders that God has raised up to lead the people of Israel. So, the first part of 1 Samuel, the people of Israel are still under the period of the judges. You don't see the first king of Israel coronated until chapter 12, Saul. And even then, God only allows kings and a monarchy as a way to let the people see that this system that they like among their foreign neighbors is quite inferior to God being their king. But that to say that what we're reading still here in chapter 5 as we start to pick up where we left off from chapter 4, this is still the period of the judges. It is believed that Samson is judge at this particular time. It's a little unclear with the years and the dates, but Samson and Samuel were born right around the same time within a few years of each other. And so they're kind of growing up together. And at this particular time, when we get to chapter 5, Samuel is now an adult. And thus Samson, that we read about in the book of Judges, he was the last judge mentioned in the book of Judges, is likely the judge at this particular time. So sometimes it's hard when we're reading our Bibles to recognize that this is not all chronological, like we go from Judges to Ruth. The story of Ruth fits back within the story of Judges. The first part of Samuel fits back within the period of the Judges. But God is raising up Samuel to not just be a judge of Israel, he'll be the last judge of Israel, but also as a prophet to speak to this nation to challenge them about where they are because the book of Judges ended by telling us that every man did what was right in his own eyes, that he had no particular moral compass as far as like the Lord giving them direction. People just decided to live however they jolly well wanted to. And of course, that brought about great disaster for them as a nation. So Samuel is now an adult by the time we get here to chapter 5. And he has grown up in the tabernacle under the mentorship of Eli, the high priest. Remember Samuel's mother as a young child gave Samuel to Eli to raise him in the house of the Lord because she had made a vow to God. If you give me a child, I will give him to you. And so Samuel grows up. Now Eli is not a very great example in some ways because he has two adult sons that Bible describes as being wicked and immoral. And uh, these guys are sleeping with women in the house of the Lord when they come to bring sacrifices. They are, the Bible says, wicked and evil. And so Samuel's kind of around this, but yet God preserves him in the middle of this family to raise him up as this prophet and judge. And in chapter 4, what we find is that the Israelites wage war against the Philistines. Now this all plays into... Chapter five. So indulge me for just a moment. The Philistines are the perennial enemies of the Israelites. They were a seafaring people who originated from the island of Crete. The Bible tells us that in Amos nine verse seven. And so small numbers of Philistines were already in the land during the days of Abraham. But when the Israelites went down to Egypt during a time of famine, the Philistines really populated primarily the Mediterranean coast of Israel that is today known as the Gaza Strip. Now, even though the Philistines, the ancient Philistines, occupied the territory that today is known as the Gaza Strip, the ancient Philistines are not the modern Palestinians. The ancient Philistines had Greek backgrounds. The modern Palestinians have Arab backgrounds. So these are two different people, and the Philistine people no longer exist. But back in the day... The Philistines were different from the other enemies of Israel, like the Amorites and the Moabites, in that the Philistines had advanced military capabilities. One of the things that the Philistines had that was the first documented people group within Israel to have was iron. And they fashioned iron to their advantage in military warfare. Because of iron, they had helmets, they had shields. They have this Greek military equipment that they had really brought with them and then developed. They even had chain mail armor. They had swords and spears. So they were a formidable foe. And they were constantly attacking Israel or Israel defending themselves against the Philistines. And so what you find happening in chapter 4 is that here's this conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites... And the Israelites were all full of themselves thinking, well, you know, we're the nation where, you know, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they got sloppy. They didn't realize that it's actually how they lived that won or lost God's favor, not just because they had the name Israel as part of their national identity. And so they lost. They lost severely in this first round of war with the Philistines. 4,000 soldiers, Israelite soldiers died. They regroup in chapter 4, and what they decide is what we need to do. The reason we lost is because we don't have God on our side. We need him as like a lucky charm, and because that's magically delicious. And so uh, they said, here's what we need to do. We need to go get the Ark of the Covenant, which they have now idolized as some kind of a magic box. And just to kind of, again, remind us of what we're talking about, the Ark of the Covenant was a... Box that was about three and three quarters feet by two and a quarter feet by two and a quarter feet. That was the dimension of this box. The lid was made of solid gold with gold cherubim or angels on top. You can see there their wings were outstretched, pointing towards each other. And it was made of acacia wood and it was overlaid with gold on the inside and on the outside. And inside this box, if you took the lid off, You would find various articles of Israel's history. You'd find the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. You would find Aaron's budding staff and a sample of manna that God had provided for them in the wilderness. And the Bible tells us that God sits enthroned between the cherubim. His very presence at times would manifest, not in some physical way, but in some Glorious, in fact, the Hebrew word is Shekinah, like the light and the glory and the majesty of God, would manifest there at the Ark of the Covenant, hovering over the lid, which is called the mercy seat. And so the Jews took the Ark of the Covenant very seriously as something that was not just a symbol of national identity, but religious identity, because God would occupy in and around the Ark of the Covenant. So the Israelites think to themselves, what we need to do is to fight the Philistines, by bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. So they go back, they fetch the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, they bring it to where they are at Ebenezer, and, um, and they wage war again with the Philistines, because they think, now we got God on our side, you know, God in the box, our lucky charm. Well, the second defeat, the second round, is worse than the first. 30,000 Israelites die. And among the Israelites who die are Eli's wicked sons... Hophni and Phinehas. The Bible says in chapter 4, verse 4, that Hophni and Phinehas, because they were also priests, they were descendants of their father, who was the high priest, the priests were the ones who carried the Ark of the Covenant. Hophni and Phinehas were carrying the Ark of the Covenant into battle. You talk about a setup for failure, you have wicked, immoral guys leading God into battle. And God's like, I'm having nothing to do with this. And so he vacates And 30,000 Israelites die, and among them, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli the high priest. So at the end of chapter 4, it tells us a messenger goes to Eli the high priest and announces that not only has his sons died, Hophni and Phinehas, but secondly, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines. The Philistines capture this. They take this with them as their own, like, trophy, and... The wife of Phinehas, now a widow, the daughter-in-law of Eli, the high priest, she goes into premature labor because when Eli hears this news that not only his sons have died, but the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant, he goes into some kind of a medical issue, probably a a massive heart attack, he dies. So here his daughter-in-law is. She just lost her father-in-law. She's lost her husband. She gives premature birth. And she names her child Ichabod, Which means no glory, because the glory of God has departed from Israel. Now, God has never abandoned his people. But when his people try to, and this includes us, okay, like apply this, not just to something of ancient Israel. Whenever we try to use God or manipulate God for our selfish and sinful purposes, there's something to pay. I mean, there's just a price to pay. And so now that's where we are here into chapter 5. And the Ark of the Covenant is now in the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines have captured it. And if you look here at chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer. That's the town that, that where this war was waged. And they bring it to Ashdod. Now Ashdod is about 35 miles from Ebenezer. Now they've moved it from the hill area, which is where Ebenezer was... Down to the Mediterranean coast. This is where Ashdod is. And verse 2 says, And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Okay, pause. Who in the world or what in the world is Dagon? Well, Dagon was a god of the Philistines. They had their own temple to a false god. And his name was Dagon. Dagon. And you know archaeologists have uncovered images and sculptures to Dagon. So now we know what Dagon looked like. He was half man and half fish. He was the god of the Philistines. He's, he's like a, a merman. You heard of mermaids? This is a merman. <laughs> so this bottom half was a fish. his top half he had a head and arms and hands of a man. And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant like a trophy. They take it into their temple to Dagon, and they put it there to him. They're like, "We're bringing you spoils, O great Dagon, and we're bringing them into the temple here to worship you and to honor you like a trophy." Okay, so read on. So, verse three, and when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. <laughs> I suppose God had something to do with that, right? It's just like, do you really think that uh, my presence is going to be polluted by this fish man? No. Deek! And then God just like, deek! you know, and so Dagon falls over and they took Dagon and set it in its place again. You know, It's a really sad thing when you have to put your God on a pedestal and glue him with a hot gun. <laughs> but that's what they have to do here. Verse 4, and when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Like, all of a sudden, the threshold becomes sacred because the manfish's head and hands fell on the threshold. They're not getting the bigger issue here, right? But this is what happens. Day one. They put the Ark of the Covenant in there, Dagon falls over, they put him back up, you know, all the king's horses, all the king's men, they gather together, try to put Dagon back together again. The next day, same thing, they walk in, he's down on the ground, broken in pieces, and they're like, Dagon, you know, they're like, they're like, something fishy's going on here. Okay, those are the only two jokes I have, all right. Like, Dagon, something fishy's going on here, and so... They realize that the power of God is here because, see, here's what God is doing for the sake of the Philistines. They think, you see, they think that it's by their power and their might that they've conquered the Israelites and they've captured the spoils, the great trophy. And God is wanting them to know, you didn't win because of your own strength. You won because I've allowed you in this process of disciplining my own people. And so, your God is inferior to me. And therefore, every morning when they would get up, God was sending them a signal. Your God is inferior. He's bowing down to me. And so, when they begin to realize this, look what happens. It gets worse. Verse 6, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, In your Bibles, the word tumors has a footnote like mine does. And I will tell you that when you look at different English translations of this word, and the Hebrew word is ofel, that in almost every English translation, it says tumors. Some translations, a few of them say boils. Okay, But what kind of tumors were these? Now, the one version that helps us to actually know what it is is the King James Version. Now I'm reading from New King James, so it translates tumors. But in the original King James, the word here instead of tumors is emrods. E-M-R-O-D-S. rods. Now, again, the Hebrew word is ophel. Ophel in Hebrew is from a root word that means to swell. All right? Is this making sense yet? Do I have to get specific? If you just say MRODs over and over again, what does it start to sound like? You're gonna need some preparation E, ladies and gentlemen, for your MRODs. Are you like, serious? Yeah. That's likely what it is here. They are feeling the pain and the swelling and everything that goes along with MRODs. All right? So God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? Don't tell me we shouldn't laugh in church. Friends, I'm going to put the fun back in fundamentalism because this is funny. God gave them hemorrhoids as a way for them to realize, don't be messing with me. Every time you sit down, you're going to realize you're messing with the wrong God here. I'm the only God. So these tumors, hemorrhoids, break out here. By the way some of your footnotes say, like mine does, it says it might refer to the bubonic plague. And the reason why some Bible scholars say that is because later we're going to see in in chapter six, that there's a correlation with rats in this story also. And so some say it's probably bubonic plague. And we know that fleas with rats and the whole thing in Europe, bubonic plague, the black plague, all of that that happened. But let me tell you why it can't be that. And like, are you disagreeing, Pastor G, with the footnotes in my Bible? They're just the footnotes. They're not inspired. That's somebody's commentary. But let me tell you why it really can't be just the bubonic plague. Because later in chapter 6, they make idols of these emrods. Pretty hard. Yeah, I know. Ew. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty hard to make an idol out of a plague. Like that's just like a bacterial thing. How do you make an idol? They fashion it with gold. Okay, we'll get into why they did that cuz that is kind of odd, but anyway, you can't make an idol, you can't fashion something if it's just a plague. This has to be an actual issue that they're having here. And so there you have it. Now, here's what they end up doing. They're like, "Wow, you know, this isn't comfortable. Let's send the Ark of the Covenant somewhere else so those people can get emeralds." And um and that's what they end up doing. Because verse 7 says, And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us. And Dagon our God. Dagon it. Therefore, verse 8, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the art of the God of Israel? So they're beginning to recognize, you know, like God's up to something. This is his art. This is something the Israelites have as part of their worship, you know, the part of the articles of the, of the tabernacle at the time. And so the Philistines gathered together the lords or the wise men are the elders of the Philistines. What should we do here? This isn't going well. And look what they answered. They answered and said, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. All right, now, Gath is another Philistine city. They're just like, let's just move it to another town. That's their advice. It would be like if, if something terrible, you know, is happening here in Leesbury, we go, what should we do? This is terrible. You know, a lot of people are getting emrods. What should we do? You know what we should do? We should send this thing to Percival. Let them get some emrods. That's what they're doing here. They're not really resolving anything. They're just like, let's just get, get it to another town. Let's not tell them. You know. Like, don't tell what's going on here. And so they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. And so it was that after they had carried it away, that the hand of the Lord was against the city, now Gath, with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. So they got the emrods too. This is like a hot potato. Let's just keep passing it down the road here. Now, so Gath, they take it from Ashdod to Gath. But now look, the people in Gath, they're like, what are we going to do? You know what we should do? We should send it to Round Hill. <laughs> and that's what they do. Verse 10, therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. Ekron's about 11 miles north of Gath. Like, send it to Ekron. And so it was that the ark of God came to Ekron. Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, because news has already reached them, they're saying, they have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. (laughs) Now in Ekron, the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, the emrods, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So Philistines, not the brightest people, they're worshiping, you know, fish man, and then they're like, we're getting all these emeralds. what should we do? Let's just kick it down the road to Gath, and the people of Gath are like, let's kick it down the road to Ekron. And finally, the people in Ekron, I mean, the news is traveled. they're like, we don't want these emrods, we gotta get this thing out of here, where are we gonna send it? You know what we need to do? Give it back to the Israelites give it back to the Israelites. Well, not quick enough because the people of Ekron get stricken with this stuff too. And so they're all miserable. They're all miserable. But then they realize we need to give it back to the Israelites. So chapter six, verse one. Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Okay. So this whole thing from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, all of this was a seven month period where they're trying to like, what should we do with this whole thing? So after seven months, they wise up, verse 2, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Now, so they call here their priests. These are false priests. They worship false gods. Philistines, again, are not Jews. They are worshipers of false gods. But they consult their spiritual leaders. What should we do? Verse three, and so they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering.
1: Thanks for listening to Cornerstone Connection. You've been listening to a message from the book of 1 Samuel. This book is packed full of practical applications for our lives today. We follow three main characters, Saul, David, and of course Samuel, through a series of crossroads and decisions they faced during the early days in Bible times. It is here that we find the victory of David over Goliath and the development of a new prophet in young Samuel. We also find the fall of the king in Saul as a reminder of the consequences of disobedience to God. As Samuel told Saul in chapter 15, verse 22, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Did you know that getting together as a church family is one way that you can hear the truth from one another? Cornerstone Chapel gets together each Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m., and Wednesday at 7 p.m. to learn from the Word and spend time in fellowship as sons and daughters of the King. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We also encourage and believe in the power of praying together and for one another. Email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net with your prayer needs today. Thanks for listening to this teaching from 1 Samuel today on Cornerstone Connection.